So I think all of us can think of times in our life, especially when you were growing up, where somebody asks you to do something and you didn't do it. And by not doing it, it was really just a detriment to you. Like the person who wanted you to do this thing wanted you to do it for your own good. Um, I have one or two occasions of this in my life. Uh, one happened when I was a kid. Uh, my dad was very healthy, worked out all the time, ate healthy, very you know di disciplined in that manner. And so there would be times where he would want us to eat raw vegetables. Now, I know some of y'all are weird and like vegetables, but if you don't like vegetables and you got to eat them raw, that's right, you know? Now, looking back on it, it was like one piece of broccoli or like a little leaf of cabbage that I could have eaten in like 30 seconds or less. But when you're a kid, it's like, mm, this is gross. I'm not sure that, that I want to do it. And so there were times, maybe just like once or twice, very, very rare, where I like ate the vegetables. So, you know, we were you know, at dinner and we have this like little piece of cabbage. And so I'd be like sl slowly but surely like tearing off pieces when no one was looking and just like putting it in my pocket. And it's like, <laughs> or like I had to go to the bathroom and the broccoli, you know, got flushed down the toilet somehow. Or I would be like, you know, after dinner, I'll eat it. And, you know, because we always had to like clean up and do certain things. So as we we're doing the dishes or whatever, I would like eat my, eat my vegetable and throw it away. And uh, the thing is, by not eating it, it was really just a detriment to myself, right? It wasn't really hurting my dad or my parents. It was uh, hurting uh, me. And, and so today, as we continue our story, uh, our journey through the book of Exodus, we're going to uh, see a uh, perhaps well-known, well-heard story in Exodus where the Israelites are going to rebel against God, and we can get this twisted and kind of think, well, God's feelings are hurt when at the end of the day, it's to their detriment um, that they do this. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Exodus chapter 13. Uh, if you don't, there's a black one around you. You can read along with us. And if you do not own a Bible, you can take one of those black ones home. It is our gift to you. Uh, and so Exodus chapter 32, the whole story of Exodus is God redeeming the Israelites um, out of Egypt, um, setting them apart. Uh, if you've been here the last few weeks, we saw God, after he redeemed them, gave them the law, uh, the tabernacle, what the priests had to do to be consecrated uh, uh, in order for them to experience God's presence within the Israelite camp. And so today we're picking up the story uh, in verse 32. Uh, now, in, ver in chapter 24 at the end, there's a very important detail uh, that we're told uh, that Moses is up on Mount Sinai getting all of these instructions instructions from the Lord, and he's there for 40 days and 40 nights. And so he's approaching the end of this time. He's about to come back down off, uh, from the mountain. The thing is that the Israelites didn't know how long he was actually going to be up there when he went to receive all of these instructions. In fact, uh, we do know a couple of times that Moses went to Mount Sinai or went up to Mount Sinai uh, before this 40-day uh, journey, if you will. And every time, the text seems to indicate that he came back that same Day And so he's been, he's been gone for a while. They didn't actually know when he was coming back, and they're terrified, right? They're terrified leaving Egypt uh, without their God, without God's presence, without Moses, their leader, of what they were actually going to do. And now also remember, too, that just before Moses went back up onto this mountain, they had agreed to form a covenant with God. They said, we're going to follow you, we're going to honor you, so that we can experience your presence and be a blessing to the world. And so within 40 days of all that happening, of God rescuing each, uh, Israel out of Egypt, of them saying, guess we're going to follow and honor you. Here's what happens, chapter 32, verse 1. It says, when the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said to him, come make gods for us who will go before us because this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron replied, Aaron was Moses' brother, take off your gold rings that are on your ears of, the, of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their gold rings that were on their ears and brought them to Aaron. 
He took the gold from them, fashioned it into an engraving tool, and made it into an image of a calf. Then they said, Israel, these are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of it and made the announcement. There will be a festival to the Lord, of, to the Lord tomorrow. And early the next morning, they arose, offered burnt offerings, and presented fellowship offerings. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to party. What? Right? Have you been with us? Like, after all of these things, what are you doing here? Let me give you a couple of things of what's happening to make sense of what's happening here. Uh, in verse 1, when it says they gathered around Aaron uh, in the Hebrew, that gives this connotation that it, was like a, uh, it wasn't like a friendly, hey, we're kind of bored. What do you think of this? It was kind of like, you better do this. Like, we, we want this to happen. You better make this calf or else. Now, this doesn't excuse Aaron's behavior of saying, yes, this is fine. We're going to do it. Um, but I think it does provide some context here that some of the leaders or some of the people a part of Israel were like, we need to do something about this. And so Aaron invites them to bring some of their gold uh, to create this idol. Now, here's what's uh, ironic about this. If you've been with us here, uh, you know that when Egypt or when the Israelites left Egypt, uh, what happened? God's power had been on such a mighty display that the Egyptians were essentially paying them to leave, right? Take the gold, take all my fine jewelry, take all of these things. And so the things that God had provided for them to help them on their journey to the promised land, they are now using these things to make an idol out of God. Now, in light of this tabernacle, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, it's easy to see the connection of what is going on here. Moses is on the mountain getting instructions of what they're going to do, build the tabernacle to experience God's presence. And what they do is that they create a calf to essentially be what the tabernacle was supposed to be for Israel. Now, a calf is not a brand new uh, God. One of the things that's confusing as you read this, you're like, man, I don't understand, after they seeing these plagues and seeing God's protection, how they can then go and create another God. Like, didn't they understand what was happening here? Um, what's happening here is that this calf is supposed to represent Yahweh. In other words, this is more of a breaking of the second commandment than the first commandment. The first is you should have no other gods before me. Uh, the second is to make no, uh, make no idols or images of me. Uh, why? For two reasons. One, nothing that you and I can create can come anywhere near the glory and majesty of God. And secondly, uh, in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, when God creates human beings, he creates us in his image. God actually already has idols on the earth. It is you and me supposed to represent his glory in creation. And so what uh, ancient cultures typically did when they made idols, they did not think that these idols were actually gods. They saw them as physical or earthly representations, uh, kind of mediators or priests, if you will, to the God themselves. And so they create this kind of saying, this is what Yahweh is going to be. We're going to worship this uh, in place of, of God's presence since Moses is not here to lead us. And so they make a calf. Now, uh, also calves and bulls were common in the ancient culture. They were also common in Egypt. Uh, and interestingly, they were often viewed as like pedestals where gods would sit on or they were stayed over. And so you would create this calf or this bull. And again, in your mind, God's presence would dwell there. So again, this is supposed to function like the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant that is in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle where God's presence is going to be. They go ahead and try to do it their way, make their own calf and say, uh, this is what who God is, who Yahweh is, and we're going to worship it. Now, again, think of all that God has done from them. They just said they're going to wait for Moses to come back down from the mountain to receive further instructions from the Lord. We're going to trust him. We're going to covenant with him. And then they do this. 
Now, what happens here, since you, got, you and I are third-party observers, like we're not really emotionally invested because we don't know any Israelites, right? That was a long time ago, and so we can kind of see this objectively. But what we see happening here is this, that rebelling against God makes you act like a fool, right? That's what's happening here. They're rebelling against God, and so it's, you, it's easy for you and I, since we are not in this situation, to look at them and be like, man, what in the world are you guys doing? Because here's the reality. In our life, what we do in place of God, we search all these other things to fill us and to satisfy us. And so we worship and we search for things to do for us what they cannot do for us, right? We search for things and we put our hope in things to provide for us what they cannot provide. Now, what I am not saying is that people who aren't sure if God exists, aren't sure about this Jesus thing are foolish, right? You can be a good, quote unquote, moral person, a decent person and not follow God. However, if God has offered a way for you and I to to experience the grace and forgiveness that we don't deserve, but because he loves us to experience salvation and grace and eternity in his presence, it would be foolish to reject these things, right? If this is true, that God has lavishly displayed his grace and mercy on us, it would be foolish for you and I to go against what God is saying, here's what, how this can happen, here's how you can experience my grace, right? It makes me think of uh, my son, Roman, who turns three today. If you're here last week, we're talking about how like he's very, uh, he's very like a go-getter and he's not afraid. And so he goes to the pool and like doesn't want his floaties on last year when he was two. And like the water's up to his neck and he like wants us to let go of him. And I'm like, this would be foolish of you not to listen to me, right? Or sometimes I feel bad, Finley, his older sister, uh, sometimes she likes, likes to do things that she can't do around Roman because if Roman tries to do them, he will like severely hurt himself, right? Like jump from like this place to this other place. Like anything he sees Finley do, he just assumes that he can do it even though he's twice as small, right? He can act like a fool if he doesn't listen. And this is what's happening here for Israel. They were rebelling against God after all that God has done for them. And we can see that this is foolish. And so here's what happens next, starting in verse seven. It says, the Lord spoke to Moses. So again, he's on the mountain receiving all of these instructions, you know, the tabernacle, the consecration of the priest, all these things. It says, the Lord spoke to Moses, go down at once for your people you brought up from the land of Egypt have acted corruptly. They have quickly turned from the way I commanded them. They have made for themselves an image of a calf. They have bowed down to it, sacrificed to it and said, Israel, these are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. The Lord also said to Moses, I have seen this people and they are indeed a stiff necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger can burn against them and I can destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. Now what's happening here is pretty intense, right? The question is, how does God respond to this grievous sin and this grievous rebellion against him? Now it is 2021. And so I'm supposed to say, God loves you anyway. Not a big deal. I got you, bro. He's fine. No, no matter. No big deal. Nothing's really wrong. Uh, the problem is that this is not how Scripture responds to sin and rebellion against God. In fact, Scripture uh, co consistently responds to these things that they must be dealt with because God is a righteous and holy and just and loving God, which means that our sin, our evil deeds cannot be a thing that do not matter. In fact, what we see happening here, what we see happening throughout Scripture is that rebelling against God's kindness brings about his wrath. What actually happens is rebelling against God's grace, mercy, and kindness in your life and in my life actually brings about his 
wrath that must be dealt with. Now, remember, again, the context of all that is happening here. Israel had just been seen God's mighty display. God rescued them, not because of anything they did, but simply out of his grace saying, I'm going to make you into a nation from which I will bless the entire world. They essentially covenant, right? They get married. They say, we're going to do this thing. And then while they're on the honeymoon, Israel goes and finds someone else. I mean, that's, that's what's happening here in the timeline. After all of these things, Israel's like, this is great. I'm, I'm, I'm uncomfortable. I'm not sure what I'm going to do. I'm going to go and find someone else. And God's response here is not no problem. It's not, it doesn't matter. His response is actually to destroy Israel, that he has to do something with what's going on here. Because if he does not, then a mockery is being made of his name in front of all of these nations that they have heard and seen that God's power has been displayed. God is going to use them to bless the earth and they're already going their own way. He has to deal with it. Otherwise, sin and evil and corruption, just like in your life and my life, if we do not deal with it, can produce uh, disastrous consequences. Uh, it's kind of like this thing called heart rot. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Uh, heart rot is this fungal disease that, uh, uh, that penetrates and impacts like really big, uh, big like redwood or heart or sorry, big hardwood trees, right? And you have these like massive trees in the forest where the fungus gets into the bark and starts to eat away from the inside out. But the problem is, if you just look at the tree straight on, uh, you would have no idea that it actually has a problem because it looks from the outside, it looks like everything is good. And so what heart rot can, heart rot can do is that it can take a massive, strong tree that if like, you ran a car into it, kind of you see those pictures of people like run into trees and it destroys their car. What it will do is that if it's uh, it been in the tree long enough, a grown man can literally walk up to a tree, push it, and it will fall over, right? A massive hardwood cannot stand if heart rot has infected it. Here's actually a picture of it if you're interested in seeing uh, what it looks like. A tree that's been cut down, you can kind of see in the middle how this, this heart rot is slowly from the middle kind of working its way towards the exterior of the tree. And if we're not careful, this can be what happens in our life. It could be what happens in Israel. It can, what, it can be what happens in Raleigh, where everyone's moving here, and we're jobs, and we're highly educated, and we got a lot of uh, wealth, and our economy is strong, even in the midst of COVID. It's like it's still growing. You try, good luck trying to buy a house if you don't have a house already, because it's crazy. And what happens is we can we kind of project this exterior like everything's fine, right? Here's an example, right? How, how's your marriage? We, we, tell, we tell everyone our marriage is fine, everything's great, until all of a sudden we're separated and we're getting a divorce. Right? We say, you know, how are you doing like honoring your spouse or how are you honoring God and God's design for sex? How's purity in your life? We say, oh, it's great. Meanwhile, we're hiding this addiction of pornography that we're, we're terrified to tell anybody out because we want to project this image that we've got it all together. Right? Or if you're, like, if you're a parent and you're struggling with your kids, but you want, you want people to think you're an awesome parent and your kids are awesome, you don't want to tell anybody uh, that you need help. And so, you, again, you project this exterior of strength. And if you do not deal with it, if you are not honest about your weaknesses and your struggles, then it will eat you from the inside out. It must be dealt with or it will destroy you. And this is where Israel finds themselves. And so if we go back to the story, if starting in verse 11, I'll summarize the next series of events. Basically what happens here is that Moses hears, he hasn't seen it yet, but he hears, God tells him what's going on. And so he tries to stand up for, for Israel, right? He tries to stand up for Israel and ask the Lord not to destroy them, which is quite the turn from the beginning of Exodus where God originally said he wanted, or Moses, when originally was called by God to lead the Israelites, he was like, I don't want to go. I don't want to do anything, do anything with them. Now he's trying to stand up for them. And so God relents from his destruction, 
which is crazy. If you want to talk about the grace and mercy of God, he relents from his destruction. He's not going to punish them simply because God, Moses asked him not to. Israel had done nothing to deserve it. In fact, they're still sinning at the moment that, God, that Moses tries to ask the Lord to not destroy them. And so God says, I'm not going to destroy them, but they still has to deal with what's going on. And so what happens is Moses is going to go down the mountain. He takes Joshua, who was up there on the mountain with him. Uh, he has the Ten Commandments that God had put in, in stone with his finger somehow. He has these Ten Commandments and two different tablets. He's bringing them down the mountain to confront what's going on. He hears that there's a party going on as it gets close to the camp. And then here's what happens. If you look down to verse 19, Exodus verse 19, chapter 32, here is what happens next. It says, e, as he, talking about Moses here, approached the camp, and saw the calf in the dancing. Moses became enraged and threw the tablets out of his hands, smashing them at the base of the mountain. He took the calf, calf they had made, burned it up, ground it into powder. He scattered, scattered the powder over the surface of the water and forced the Israelites to drink the water. Then Moses asked Aaron, what did these people do to you that you have led them into such a grave sin? Don't be enraged, my Lord, Aaron replied. You yourself know that the people are intent on evil. They said to me, make gods for us who will go before us because this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Verse 24, so I said to them, Aaron said to them, whoever has gold, take it off. And they gave it to me. And when I threw it into the fire, out came this calf. <laughs> what? But that's not what happens. You don't just like throw stuff in a fire and this gold. That is not what happens. But it's interesting to see Aaron's response and what is happening here as Moses, understandably, even though he already knows what's happening after he sees it, he also wants to probably destroy Israel. Here's what happens. Aaron right, is confronted with his sin, that he allowed this to happen, although maybe it wasn't his idea. He did sign off on it. He did give his okay. He allows it to happen. And the first thing he does when he's confronted is blame someone else, right? He blames the Israelites. He blames the fire. It's certainly not his fault. There's all these reasons why Aaron should not be at fault about what is going on here. And as, again, it's easy for us to see because we're kind of third-party observers to this. It's easy for us to see what's happening here, right? But the reality of the situation, you and I are just like this in so many areas of our life, right? We are so compelled to justify ourselves and our sin anytime we get found out, that honestly, it takes next to nothing to blame someone else, right? Next to nothing to figure out all these reasons why everything is okay. This is part of the reason why we can assume in our culture and our society today that good people go to heaven, right? Because anything we do, like we admit, like none of us are perfect, but as long as our good outweighs our bad, and we assume that our good outweighs our bad, because when anytime we do something, we have all these reasons why it's really not that big of a deal, right? If somebody else does the same exact thing, someone else cuts you off in traffic, well, that's bad. Things should happen to them. But if, so, but if you cut someone else off in traffic, it's like, well, you know, I didn't mean to. I'm, I'm rushing. I'm busy. I, it was an accident. We kind of think it's okay. It's kind of like, as a side note to me, I always think it's really funny um, when people like, on, let's say like on social media, somebody breaks into their car and they steal like their phone or their wallet or whatever. And people will often get mad and will say, well, karma's a you know what? Don't say it. No, don't say it. But karma is not a good thing, right? And the assumption here, I should be more careful next time. Uh, 
the assumption here is that because something, somebody did something bad to them, that karma is going to get them. And I always, I haven't done this because I'm a pastor and I can't, but I always want to respond, well, if karma's true, then you deserved your phone to get stolen. Like, isn't that, right? Like, that's how it works. Like, if, that's how this thing works, right? But we don't think it because we justify every bad thing that we do, and that is what Aaron is doing here. Now, fast, what's fascinating here is that the book, really all throughout uh, the Old Testament, we see beginning in Genesis that God creates the garden, places Adam and Eve in it, and he says, I'm going to use you to expand my glory among the earth, uh, that my glory and my grace and my presence will be everywhere. But then what happens? They sin, and they, they blame each other. Adam blames Eve. Eve plays, blames the snake, and they, they blame each other for what's happening here, and they have fallen short. And so what we see throughout uh, the Old Testament is God is constantly uh, recreating Genesis and inviting people uh, to, re- to, come, to come to him, to follow him, so that his presence can be experienced throughout all the earth. And so Exodus is another Eden narrative, if you will, right? He calls uh, the Israelites out of Egypt, even though they didn't do anything to really deserve it. God is just grace, giving him grace. He says, follow me and honor me and my presence will be, in, will be with you. I will dwell among you. Uh, they blow it, right? Right away, they blow it. They make another God. They do not honor God themselves. And they're already blaming Aaron's already blaming everybody else as to why he's not at fault and why Israel should not be punished for what they are doing here. And in fact, in other words, what we see here is again, is this Eden all over again. And it's pointing to us to a shadow of our desperate need to pass the test that everyone in the Old Testament fails and that you and I fail, that we fall short, that we blame, that we go our own way, that we desperately need somebody to do something for us that we clearly cannot do for ourselves. And why this is so serious is because at the end of the day, when you and I sin, even though we try to justify it, the reality is this, that God never excuses our sin. Although we can find all these reasons why it's okay, and I didn't mean to do it, and I shouldn't be punished. At the end of the day, God still deals with it. He's never like, no big deal. He's never like, that doesn't matter. He's never like, I hear your story. You know what? Forget about it. Doesn't matter at all, right? The reality of the situation, as we see here, that Aaron had a choice to make. Even if it was uncomfortable telling some of these Israelites, no, we're not going to create this calf, he still went along with it. He had a choice to make, and so do you, and so do I. Again, God's never like, oh, that makes sense. Not a big deal. I'm righteous and holy and just, but you can enter into my presence as if nothing had ever actually happened. The reality, again, is this, is that we cannot blame other people for our sin. Now, certainly there are hard things in life. There are certainly hard places we find ourselves where doing the right and honorable and loving thing is hard. But at the end of the day, it is up to us to choose whether or not we want to honor God and love people. Uh, We have to choose it. It is our decision. God does not excuse it as if it doesn't matter. It reminds me of something that happened to me a few months ago. Um, I was playing this game called Among Us. So a few of you know what Among Us is. It's like this really basic game that you can play. I'll explain it for you real quick. It's like this basic game uh, that you can play on your phone or on the computer. And it's like with six to 10 people and then you voice chat. And so it's fun to play it with people that you know. And it's like this like 2D, you're like aliens on a spaceship. The aliens are like a five-year-old drew them. You're like these little blobs. You're like running around. And uh, you're trying to complete all these tasks. And there's these imposters. There's one or two imposter. And they try to take all the aliens out before they can finish their task. And each round, the, the non-imposter aliens try to vote and figure out who the imposters are and before they all get taken out. And so the imposters win if they take out all the aliens. And all the other non-imposters win if they can vote and figure out who the imposters are before they all get taken out. Now, Here's why this is significant. So I was playing this game with some people a few months ago, and we were playing for like an hour, an hour and a half. The rounds are kind of short, so you can play multiple games. And I just wanted to be the imposter. 
Right? I just want to be the bad guy. I don't, I don't like, I just want to take people out, you know, very pastoral of me. Like, I don't, I want to lie. I want to say it's not me. I want to deceive people. It's great. I know. And so we're playing, and I never get it. I'm like, this is boring. The only reason I play this game is to take people out. And then I got it. Right, I got it. I was so excited. We finally we start we start playing. The first round I like take someone out and then I blame somebody and they like falsely accuse someone else and we're on to the second round. And then all of a sudden, I hear like a shriek from Christina. Now, Christina and I are celebrating 10 years in May. And uh, yeah, we're going to Disney without the kids, just so everybody knows. Thank you. Well, since we've been married so long, I've come to realize that when she does that, it really means nothing. What it really means is that she has found a bug. And uh, as I always say, and so she's like, I found a bug, come kill it. And I'm like trying to play this game. And I'm like, I'm finally the imposter. I can't stop what I'm doing because then I'm going to lose. And so I say, our cat, Phoebe, she'll kill it because she always kills all the bugs that she finds. We wake up in the morning and they're there. Um, We don't have a bug infestation, but every once in a while, we'll wake up and they're there. And so Christina's not having it. She's like, you got to come kill this bug now. And I'm like, but no. And so I like, I get up off the couch and I run to the bathroom. I take a shoe and I see it. And as I'm about to like smack it, it runs into our room. And I'm like, I ain't got time for this. I got aliens to take out. I got to save the world. And so what, I, what do I do? I smack the ground, flush the toilet, and run back to the couch. I'm a, I'm a great husband, y'all. And, and so like a minute later, Christina comes out of the room. Dylan. And I'm thinking, how does she know? Like, how does she know? Because she didn't see it. And I'm like, oh. I'm like playing this game. I gets it. I'm going to lose. I got so lucky. She was like, it's okay. I thought I was in trouble. I, like, I lied or whatever. And so she was like, it's okay. I know that you would like you pretend to smack the bug because you know if you didn't kill it, then uh, I wouldn't be able to sleep at night. You know, besides the fact that the reason I pretended was because I didn't actually want to look for it, not because I couldn't find it. Um, but I was like, oh, like, I could not blame anybody. Right? I couldn't blame the game, the little alien. She don't care about this. Right? She's like, kill the stinking bug. There was no excuse for what I did. Now, luckily, she forgave me, but there was still, like, the fact that like, I couldn't blame anybody. It was clearly me. I was found out as soon as she said my name. Like, as you guys, like, I knew it. It was me. Because here's the truth. No matter what we find ourselves in, no matter what we do, even in difficult situations, at the end of the day, your sin is your fault. What Scripture is pointing to is that your sin, your rebellion, your selfishness, your pride is not anybody's fault but yours. Now, again, our impulse is to justify, as human beings, is to justify ourselves, right? That, 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 we, that what happens is not our fault and it trumps reality, right? All the time we find ourselves in situations where we probably did the wrong thing, but we know all the reasons why we, why we did it. And so we assume, we make up this story in our mind that it's really not that big of a deal, right? It's crazy for us as we read Aaron, right? And Aaron's saying, well, I just kind of like threw all this gold together into the fire and out came this calf and just like, I, it, just, it just happened, right? And we laugh at that because we're like, no, bro, that's not what happens. Now, I don't know this, but I could easily see a, a situation where Aaron probably legitimately believed what he was saying, right? We're, we're, we're in an objective third party, so we know that he was crazy. He's lying here. But in his mind, again, he was pressured. He didn't want to do it, but he maybe he was afraid for his safety, and they didn't know how long Moses was going to be there. It had been 40 days. They had never gone probably more than 24 hours without their leader leading them, and they didn't know what to do, and they didn't know where God's presence went. And so Moses probably, or Aaron probably in his mind was kind of like, yeah, it just kind of, it just kind of happened, right? He probably, he probably in his mind thought that this actually happened this way. Right, because he's justifying what he is doing. 
right? Just like you and I, if we are not careful, do this to ourselves, right? All the reasons why I've done X, Y, and Z and why it's really not that bad because we justify it for ourselves over what has happened here. What we see in, in Israel in Exodus and throughout scripture is that our sin matters. God, because he is loving and just, has to deal with it, and there is no excuse for it. And so Israel finds himself in a difficult situation because God, like heart rot, has to deal with it so this sin and this evil does not spread and that his grace can actually be delivered on the earth. And so here's what happens next. If you pick it up in verse 25, I'll summarize the next couple of verses. Again, because God is just and doesn't take sin lightly, he has to deal with Israel's sin. He's not going to destroy them, although after all that he has done, he has every reason to actually do that if he wanted to. Uh, He's not going to do that. Instead, what happens is Moses invites those who want to honor Yahweh, essentially, to, to gather their swords and to come forward. And so eventually the Levites, which is one of the 12 clans of Israel, they're broken up into 12 clans. The Levites come forward to do what Moses is asking. The Levites are going to end up being the priestly class. And so this kind of makes sense. Uh, They come forward and they kill all of the leaders and probably many of those who participated in this rebellion, probably those who said we're going to do it and those who donated their gold and their fine jewelry. And it says that 3,000 men died that day. 3,000 men because of their rebellion against God. Now, here's the thing. This is heavy, right? We talk about sin, and we talk about uh, that it's not, there's no excuse for it, and that God is holy and just and must deal with it. And in fact, 3,000 men died for leading uh, this sinful rebellion against God's grace on these people. It's difficult, right? The people of God here had made a mockery of God. They have, they'd seen God's power and glory and said, we're going to do our own thing. And so something has to be done. Something has to be done because God cannot allow it to continue. And so verse 30, here's what happens next after those men were killed. It says, the following day, Moses said to the people, you have committed a grave sin. Now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I will be able to atone for your sin. So Moses, again, wants to make atonement for Israel's sin. Atonement just means that he wants to pay the ransom for. He wants to try to figure out something to do so that God's grace or God's forgiveness can come upon Israel but still be dealt with. His wrath is still dealt with. And so he goes to up to the Lord uh, to try to offer up himself as the sacrifice. Uh, and the fact that, I just want to say this, the fact that God would even listen to them is crazy. There's no reason for God to listen to them. But here's what happens, verse 31 to the end of the chapter. It says, so Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a grave sin. They have made a God of gold for themselves. Now, if you would only forgive their sin, but if not, please erase me from the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will erase from the book. Now go lead the people to the place I told you about. See, my angel will go before you. But on the day I settle accounts, I will hold them accountable for their sin. And the Lord inflicted a plague on the people for what they did with the calf Aaron had made. Now, interestingly here, Moses, what does he try to do? He tries to offer himself in place of Israel as a sacrifice. He says, take me out and forgive them. But there's a problem because Moses is also an imperfect substitute. Right? He, is, he has also gone his own way. He has also, as we've seen throughout Exodus, uh, been many times where he chose what he wanted to do over what God wanted to do. And so he could not stand in their place. So Israel will still have to find an imperfect, or sorry, Israel would still have to feel the impact of what they had done. 
And so again, as we see the heaviness of this, that it must be dealt with, that God can't be like, oh, it does not matter, we begin to see a shadow of things to come, right? That Moses is a picture of a greater Moses and who will actually come and do for us what we could not do for ourselves, what Israel could not do for themselves, and would actually take the penalty of sin on our behalf, which is why when we sit and we hear the righteousness and the holiness of God and our sin and how we fall short, it makes this truth even more beautiful, that Jesus paid the ransom you could never pay. Jesus did it. You didn't do it. Your spouse didn't do it. Your bank account didn't do it. You're praying. You're reading your Bible. You're trying to be financially generous. None of these things did it. Jesus paid the ransom that you and I could never pay. He is the perfect fulfillment of all these things, of the law, of love, of the tabernacle, of the priests and the garments. Jesus fulfilled all these things on our behalf. And it is good news because it is our sin. It is your sin. It is my sin that killed him. I think so often, again, we think we're not that, we're not perfect, but we're not terrible. And so Jesus came to like fill in like the 25% we needed to get to heaven. And so it's like, it's, we're grateful that Jesus came, but we don't actually understand the magnitude of it. This helps us see that a little bit. I think also we, ta- we sometimes think that like God had to do something because God is love. He had to do something to forgive us. And so it's great that Jesus came, but he had to do something anyway. And we forget that that is not true. That God does not have to do anything. He does not need you. He does not need me. He does not. But he loves us. And in his grace, he gives himself for us. Right. And in fact, what's interesting is that as you read the Old Testament, there's a lot of terrible people who do a lot of terrible things. Even kind of some of the heroes at times. Like King David. King David could never be a pastor. He killed people. He committed adultery. I mean, Solomon had like 700 wives. What? You know, there's, I mean, you read stuff and you're like, how, how is in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, does it say they were counted as righteous? It was certainly not because they were great, because they believed that God's fulfilling promise would one day come. Just like you and me, we do not, we need somebody to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. God in his grace sent Jesus to make it possible for you and us, you and I to experience the presence and the grace of God. Jesus paid the ransom you could never pay, which is why we worship and sing, even in the midst of a pandemic and financial hardships and relational brokenness and unknown health problems, right? We can sing because God has given us grace and mercy and we know this is not the end. And here's what I know. Here's what I know. When it comes to following Jesus, there are many things that can keep us from that. Um, we could have questions like intellectual doubts. Uh, we could have had maybe a lot of bad things happen to us. And so we're like, I'm not sure that God is loving because why would he allow that? Like, there's a lot of things that could keep us from him. Uh, one of the things that can also keep us from him is our shame, right? Because we hear messages like this and we think, well, you don't know what I've done, right? You don't know all the terrible things that I have done. Right, and, and I think what's so great about this is uh, my response when I talk to people about like, man, I've, I've blown it, I've gone my own way. And then we hear things about scripture, about Jesus was the substitute on our behalf to give his life for us so that we can experience the grace of God so that anybody can receive his mercy and grace. The response is this, right? Who are you to tell God what he can and cannot do? Who are you? And so I don't know what you walked in here with this morning. Maybe you're feeling a lot of shame for some of the decisions that you've made, some of the things that you have done. And you need to know that Jesus, not you, not your decision-making, Jesus paid the ransom that you could never pay so that you and I can experience the grace and mercy of God. What's happening in Exodus is heavy. 
And yet God says, I love you. As we'll see next week, Israel doesn't do anything but repent. And God is gracious and merciful for them. They didn't get their act together, right? God changes our hearts. He loves us first. And in response to that, our lives change. Jesus paid the ransom you could never pay. And when we see the weight of our sin, the glory of Jesus shines even brighter. And so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to invite the van uh, on stage, and we're going to do what we do every week. And we're going to take a minute, and we are going to lay our shame and our sin before the Lord. And we're going to experience his grace, and we're going to experience his mercy as we have a time of confession. Right?